You know, dur- during the week before our wedding, Kath- uh, my, my, wife, my wedding to Catherine, I worked a lot, um, exclusively, almost exclusively with my hands to build my wife a bed frame. It was my wedding gift to her. And I actually stayed out at a friend's farm just outside of Prince George for a number of uh, days where I scoured his property to find just the right pieces of wood to begin to craft um, this, what I thought was going to be a beautiful thing at the end of the day. Now, once complete, the tricky part was, was trying to surprise my bride with it. It's kind of large. It wasn't something I could just hand her like she handed me this watch. Um, so that's where the groomsmen came in. Now, today, groomsmen are often seen as like their job is to throw a great stag party and hopefully get the groom to the wedding. That's kind of it. But I took a much more old school approach to this, this whole wedding party business. I wanted the help of my groomsmen um, to prepare for the day. And they were all in. We had moved in a bunch of like big flower baskets, living flowers into the church. They were there to run them back and forth at the horse trailer. And um, they were there. I was relying on these guys to move that bed frame on the day so I could present it to Catherine. And they didn't let me down. I think there's a picture of it there somewhere. Yeah, there you go. So um, they knew this day wasn't about them. They were there to support me and my bride as we moved into this new season of life. See, the job of the best man, usually it's the groom's best friend, um, is basically this. They say, "I I know this isn't about me. This day is about you. How can I help? What can I do? And as we dive in this morning to part three of our series, TechWise, we're going to look at a story of a best man, someone who is able to frame his own story in light of a much bigger story of God's work. And that will say a whole lot about how we then engage in the digital landscape. You might be thinking, really? How could that be? Well, let me show you how, and let's just pray before we do. Father, we're so thankful uh, that we have your wisdom to draw on. Um, And we ask now that you would open our hearts to hear everything that you have for us today. Holy Spirit, come and speak. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the big cultural features um, that is just kind of currently a big part of the waters we swim in, whether we recognize it or not, it, it goes something like this. It's up to you to make the life you really want. To create a meaningful life, you have to write your own story with you as the central character. And I, I just Googled just writing your own story. And one of the first things that popped up was a bit of this blog. And I want to read you a section of it. Um, the writer says, you know what we all have in common? Well, maybe you didn't know it yet, but all of us possess a book from day one. Each one of us starts with the same blank pages. Then we fill in the chapters as time passes by. And by doing so, we turn those blank pages into spaces, uh, blank spaces, pardon me, into our unique stories. And I'm really trying to resist the urge to sound patronizing in my tone here. I think I'm doing okay so far, okay? <laughs> I'm going to keep going. Uh, you are not a side character in your own book, and you will never be if you don't let that happen. You're entitled to fill it in with any story you want. No one else is responsible to write your book. Guess what? You are. You're the one thinking of the concepts when you're fantasizing about your future. The one who writes it when you're living in the moment. The one who decides which characters will take a certain part of your story and when you meet new people. The one who edits the story when you find out certain people and things don't work out the way you thought it would be. The one who will finish it until the end of the book. There is no fixed story. You write it as you live through it. There is no supposed to. 
The only thing you're supposed to know is that you are in charge of your own book. There is no right or wrong way to live my story, only my own way, because I'm the author of my own story. Okay, wow. So uh, let's just think about this for a moment. Uh, This is really reflective of the waters that we swim in, because to some of your ears, you said, yeah, that doesn't sound that odd to me. And um, that I'm the author of my own story piece, that is alive and well in the world we live in. Before we go any further, though, I just need to say that there's at least some merit here. We really do have real choices to make, and these will have an impact on our real lives. But the assumption that underlies um, this, this whole idea that you have to write your own story is basically there is no other story. There is nothing else going on. This is what philosopher Charles Taylor calls living in a secular age. He shows in his very, very big book that I'm still working on um, that at the heart of a secular age is a generalized culture of authenticity. And I talked about that authenticity last week. If you didn't get to hear the message, go to YouTube. Boy, our webpage isn't working very well, but YouTube is, so you can still find it there. Uh, Authenticity or expressive individualism in which people are encouraged to find their own way, discover their own fulfillment, do their own thing. That's exactly what this blog post was encouraging you and I to do. It was saying, you, you're the individual. You have to create your own story. You have to write it. No one else will. And in a secular age that's also a digital age, the explosion of social media and other ways of kind of revealing who you are in online spaces has become really a platform for that expressive individuality. The digital landscape reinforces and accelerates this individualism uh, in, in a major way. Now, there's a research project called the Renegotiating Faith Report. It researched a large number of young adults, and, and here's what part of it says. It says, several young adults said that the purpose of social media posts is to present yourself as a unique individual who does not lead a routine life. Did you catch it? The purpose of a Facebook post to those who are deeply ingrained in that culture say it's about expressing an identity and making sure, man, it can't be seen as ordinary. This has caused a lot of pressure, especially for young people. So you might say, well, I don't use social media, so this doesn't affect me. Guess what? It affects your kids and your grandkids. And if you care about this generation, you need to care about the things I say next here. So just, this is going to take a minute to unpack, but this really matters if you care about the generation that's coming up under you. Here's what, I, here's what researchers are finding. They're noticing this on an increasing scale. Number one, they're noticing this, what, what they call the fear of missing out or FOMO. This is the idea that when we have access to all these highlights and these pictures you're seeing on your friends' posts, you feel like there's something significant going on out there in the world, and you are simply missing it. And that's not what my life looks like. That's what you're saying. Number two, it leads to comparison anxiety. That's the idea that if you don't have anything interesting happening in your life, and you're looking at all of these other posts, it can actually lead to a sense of depression. Uh, just this low-grade sort of rumbling that my heart is missing out. Um, One young adult says it like this in that report. It's almost like social media creates an airbrushed life that makes everybody dissatisfied. And number three, the fear of not being amazing. Now, on the the one hand, um, you know, it's like I better look amazing 
I've been told all my life that I'm special, that I'm significant. And if my life doesn't look like that online, then people are going to notice. Then am I really special? This fear of not being amazing has that, that piece there, that fear of being just ordinary, just a normal person. Um, and second, this leads to that sense that with so many watching my life, I don't want to mess up. Because guess what? In the past, I could try something and I could fail at it or not do very well. And guess what? I've got this small community of people who love me and support me. And I can dust myself off and try something else. No big deal. Now, people fail at something and the video cameras, of everyone is on them. And who knows if that doesn't get uploaded and become viral, me failing. So young adults today are just feeling like they can't try new things and fail at them. Why? Because it could just be broadcast to the worldwide stage so easily. And the mockers are there too, as we talked about last week. So never before has there been so much pressure on young people to both uh, to create and then project an identity out into the world. And so my question is, what hope is there for that kind of world? Like, what are the alternatives? I just want to say, maybe it's more like what Sam Gamgee says to Frodo near the end of the Lord of the Rings story. He says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Notice this. Sam recognizes that there is a story and he's not at the center of it. He's not the center of the world. He's a part of it, but it's not his story. And the Christian claim is that there is a God who is the source of all being, the creator of all life, who has entered into human history in order to buy back, to redeem, to restore his loved but now sin-broken world and especially humanity within it. The question is, what if that story is true? That means that there is a bigger story going on. And most people, when we can move away from distractions long enough, we sense that there really is more. There are these moments of unexplainable peace that we experience We experience beauty in such a way that it kind of like breaks in on us and makes us go, wow, there must be a God. There must be a creator. It can't just be the neurons firing in my brain causing a chemical reaction, though that's part of it. That can't be all it is. Maybe there is a whole spiritual dimension. Maybe there is a creator who formed us and who's telling a beautiful story and it doesn't have me at the center of it. And here's where the good news becomes so, so good. I want to suggest that this idea that you have to write your own story is utterly and completely false. You don't. There is a bigger story, and it's beautiful because it's true. Like there is an author. There is a storyteller. And his story is so wonderful and vast and broad. And not only that, he has called you and I to find our place in that story. But until we recognize that, we'll go on and continue to write our own and think it's all up to us. I want us to look at a guy named John the Baptist because he got it. You know, he knew that the story wasn't his. He had this incredible job of preparing the world to meet the Savior of the world. So he's been baptizing people, baptizing them in the river. It's a signal that these people wanted to start a new life of following God. And so let's listen in. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 23. I'm actually going to start at verse 22. (laughs) After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside 
where he spent some time with them and baptized. Okay, now Jesus is baptizing people too. Interesting. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he's baptizing. And everyone's going to him. It's a bit like they're saying, remember that guy that you were talking about the other day? Like, John, he's become the competition. And it looks like he's winning. Like, everyone's going over to him. Listen to John. To this he replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. He's talking about his job there. This is the job I've got. I'm receiving that. And he goes on to say, you yourselves can testify that I said, man, I'm not the Messiah. That's not my job. But I'm sent ahead of him. That is my job. The bride, and now he's talking about the people of God, those who are going out to Jesus, all who trust in God for their life and wholeness. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Bridegroom being Jesus in this case. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. Like he's here, he's on the scene. And then he says this, he must become greater. I must become less. John, he has been up to this point at the epicenter of this new thing that God is doing. He is preparing people to meet the Messiah, but he knows it's not his story. Everything in his life so far has been preparing him to point to Jesus and say, look, there he is. He's come for you. But look, recognizing that he's not at the center, it's not a drag for him. Yes, with Jesus on the scene, John celebrates with joy that all of history, the big story, is coming to its climax, and he gets to be a part of it. What joy, he says. And guess what? You and I, we, like John, are called to have a significant role in that story too. We also get to point to Jesus, of course, not in the historically unique way that John does, but in a sense, all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are there to prepare the way to glorify Jesus, to point people to meet the living Christ. Ephesians 2.10, it really gets at the heart of this. It says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has this big story, this prepared in advance story, and he says we get to participate in that. So the question comes back to you and me now. How might John's attitude and approach to life, his approach to Jesus, how might that frame how we approach our lives and even how we live in the digital world? Let's dig into that now. First, John tells us, you are not writing your own story. So the pressure is off. Your meaning, your purpose in life, those come from outside of yourself. You don't have to generate them. It comes from opening ourselves up, just like John did, and saying, he must become greater, and I must become less. But because we live in a secular age that's (laughs) where the predominant mode of existence is, you need to define your own story, and you need to do it and be amazing at it. These cultural waters can even begin to pull Christian people along with the stream to tempt us to give into 
Well, that self-focus, identity-building sorts of behaviors. There was um, a, a report that just came out like 10 days ago that was done by World Vision and Barna, a worldwide study on emerging generations. It's a beautiful study. Go read the findings from it. But one person said they were talking to a ministry leader at Oxford University, and they asked the question, what's the biggest challenge that Christian students are facing at Oxford? So these are some of the smartest young people around. Number one, depression. Number two, loneliness. Number three, a sense of like, I don't know what's going to happen. Where is my future going? The biggest issues that Christian young people, some of the smartest in the world, are facing all come back to some of these issues of identity formation and who really am I? That to me signals that this isn't an issue just for those who don't know Jesus yet, but this is a wrestling for those who actually do. Now, sometimes it comes out in this sense that I have to publicly perform this identity online. For young people, maybe that's the case. For those of us, maybe in our like midlife sort of stage, and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm under no illusion that I'm hitting that midlife point in my life. Um, for some of us, it comes out in materialism and unhealthy consumption. It's often this internal longing for something more, and, and, and so people say, man, if I had that motorcycle or that big house by the lake or that romantic fling, man, the whole midlife crisis thing is actually a crisis of meaning. It's a secular and godless, like God's not really in the picture sense, so unless I make something of my life, it doesn't mean anything. Christian people, that is not where we're coming from. There is good news. The good news is the motorcycle won't do it, neither will the house, and definitely not the fling. Be faithful in your marriage. The other path will destroy your life. John tells his disciples, and us too if we'll listen, what we will need to do. He says, it's, it's not my story. So if there's one message I can give you this morning, if I hope you leave with something, it's just saying he must become greater, I must become less. It's not my story, I don't have to write it. God, what are you doing? That's the point of this message this morning, but let's talk about some of the more uh, nitty-gritty details of this and how we can make that work. Second thing I want to point out from John the Baptist is because the purpose of our life isn't to be seen as amazing by our peers, we're actually free to begin just loving people, just for them. Like, we're not in competition. Remember how John said, you know, John's disciples like, hey, Jesus, he's getting all the people. Jesus is like, that's great. He's the bridegroom. It's all about him anyways. See, the rise of, since the rise of modernity, and you probably think, well, that's like 50 years ago. No, modernity starts in the um, 16th century. Uh, what we call the, the modern Western era starts, era starts in the 16th century. And the emphasis begins to shift about what it means to be a human. It begins to prioritize individuality. Prior to this time, people viewed themselves mostly by the community that they were in. Um, they saw themselves as persons, especially persons in relation to others, people in community. You might be thinking, well, what's the difference between individuality and personhood? It's huge. And the effects of individualism on us as a culture have been devastating. Again, from the Renegotiating Faith Report, uh, Twenge um, concurs that individualism leads to isolation, crippling anxiety, and crushing depression. And then it quotes uh, this researcher. The growing tendency to put self first leads to unparalleled freedom, but it also creates an enormous pressure to stand alone. This is the, outside, this is the downside of the focus on the self. 
When we're fiercely independent and self-sufficient, our disappointments loom large because we have nothing else to focus on. All too often, the result is crippling anxiety and crushing depression. See, individualism is you have to define life on your terms. And often, whether we recognize it or not, this is over and against or in competition with those around us. Um, And anxiety, they talk about that sense of anxiousness or fear. I'm going to tell you a quick story. Last year, um, in this time, it was September, we were doing the God Question series. A lot of people were really kind of engaged with that, sharing it with their friends. It was, it was really great. Um, I had posted some things, just little short clippets to sort of invite people to come and to sort of engage with that material. That's primarily how I use social media is to point people to Jesus. And, and for a month and a half, it got to be about the end of October. And I was going like, man, am I chopped liver or something? <laughs> like I'm posting these things and there's crickets. There's just no responses or like I'm asking people questions and there's like no comments underneath. And so I'm starting to feel this sense of like anxiety and, and a little bit of depression almost. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like I, what? And I checked my settings and the only person who was seeing it was my wife. <laughs> and she like doesn't use Facebook. So <laughs> hardly ever. So it was this, this funny thing though, but I was, you know, I was just doing my job and I was trying to engage people and it was just, and that, that sense of there's nothing out there to respond to me was creating this increased sense of anxiety. And in fact, I had someone just this week come to me and say, Dave, I have a testimony. Like I have to share with you how I had, you know, just been using social media for, you know, for my business and it was good for that, but also just engaging with friends. And then I would, you know, I would post something and, and then I would notice that people, like certain people in my circles just weren't liking it or commenting on it. And she, and, and she said, it just started to feel a little bit like this sense of, okay, well, what, what's wrong? Like maybe like, did I offend them? Or is there something wrong with our relationship? And it was kind of giving her this sense of like, just really feeling depressed and almost like, I don't really want to leave home because she posted something on Facebook and it wasn't responded to. And that makes sense if you're, you're putting yourself out there in this world, but the, and so you see where the problem is here. <laughs> when we begin to sort of um, look for that sense of worth, perhaps, in the response of other people to us or to what we've put out into the world, that can create this great sense of anxiety. And here's the good news. The Christian understanding of personhood is different than individualism because it means we're persons in relation to God, in reconciled relation with him. He listens when we cry out to him. We know that he loves us. And that means I don't have to seek the approval of others to know that I'm loved. He won't unfriend us when we mess up. You know, this person also said that, that it was affecting her sense of community. It was making her feel more isolated when, when certain people weren't liking things or, or whatever on her, on her Facebook page. And she said, it, it, I just realized it was crazy, but she didn't really know the way out of it. And so, as she said, it was beginning to diminish her sense of that personhood in community. And, and the good news is that because God loves us, we're not, we're not actually li- listening for the approval of others, but for his approval first and foremost. Being a person doesn't obliterate your uniqueness, but it gives room for God to actually be God to you at the center of your life. It gives room for him to work so that we might serve and love him and others, not in competition, 
but in just the genuine desire to glorify God and love others and build community. John's joy was to see Jesus glorified. That's where our joy will spring from as well. So how do we reclaim that in a digital age? Let's go back to the wisdom literature of the Proverbs just for a few points, and then we'll get very specific. All throughout uh, the Bible, actually, but particularly the Psalms and the Proverbs, we find this theme. It goes like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding his praise endures forever, Psalm 111.10. Uh, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. But there's also a flip side. There's a contrast. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, something that catches us, entraps us, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe, Proverbs 29.25. But what is the fear of the Lord exactly? Well, it just as... The fear of man doesn't mean being afraid of other people, like fearing for your safety. It means I care deeply about what other people think of me, even to the point that it maybe drives many of my actions. In a similar way, the fear of the Lord is not equivalent to being afraid of God. It means to reverence him, to respect him and his opinions. It's to recognize his power and his sovereignty, and then trust that he made us out of love for himself and he knows how life works best. It's to know that he's ultimately the one who holds our future in his hands and he's the one to whom we are ultimately accountable and therefore we need to be very concerned about what he thinks of us. To fear God is to value his opinion of you over everyone else's and when we do, that is the beginning of wisdom. You'll begin to make decisions where you're not doing it in response to fear of other people, but just simply, God, what do you want for me? And when we find that, we actually find freedom. Freedom from those crippling fears to try to make a name for ourselves. Think of it. What's at the heart of comparison anxiety? The, the concern that my life just doesn't look as amazing of some as someone else's. That's the fear of man. The fear of not being amazing, again, it's the fear of what others think, not of what God thinks. And the fear of man is a snare. It really is. Like a snare that catches an animal. When you put your weight on what others think of you and not what God thinks of you, you will be stuck. You will be tethered down. So the way to freedom is to change which story we're believing. Do you believe the story of individual expression that you've got to write your own? Or do you believe this story? Just a few verses earlier, we read this incredible news that says, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes, that means to trust, to find their heart's true home in, who relies deeply on him, whoever believes in him would not perish, doesn't experience the unraveling disintegration of life that begins now actually and has implications for your whole eternity does not perish, but has eternal life. Again, full, true life. Life as it's meant to be in the key of you are loved by God and you belong. True life that begins right now and then carries on for the rest of eternity. So when we know we're not writing our own story, when we shift our allegiance and put our trust in this one, in this person, when our starting place is the fear of the Lord and not the fear of other people, we're released to a life of freedom. And there are 
practices that support and affirm that place. It will mean loosening the grip of our hands on patterns of life that, that we, we use to build an individualist identity. It means opening ourselves to the spirit-gifted, grace-freely-given identity as children of God, and we sang about that this morning. Because we're persons in relation to God, not mere individuals, how we approach building our life will take a very distinct shape. Let's talk about some of these shapes just as we close now. Um, I've borrowed these two that I'm going to talk about from Andy Crouch's excellent book, The TechWise Family. Again, highly recommend it. Go buy it. Uh, Number one, we will aim to build deep trust in our most significant relationships. For Catherine and I, We've never, we've always known each other's passwords on our computers, devices, had total access to each other's accounts in every single way. Andy Crouch speaks of this commitment too. He writes the commitment in this way, spouses have each other's passwords and parents have total access to the children's devices. Since trust is a key factor in any relationship, we want to make commitments that reinforce and build that trust. Now, I can imagine someone making an argument that goes like this. Well, Dave, if, if, if he really trusted me or, or if, you know, she really trusted me, she wouldn't need to have access to my passwords and my phone. Okay, but that assumes that we're not susceptible to temptation. <laughs> that assumes that accountability isn't a feature of life that helps to protect our relationships. The fact that you would not want your spouse to have utter access to everything you do digitally, that smacks of a trust problem. That's the issue. This will guard you from any kind of unfaithfulness in marriage, whether it's an emotional affair, that sense of over-reliance on another person that's not your spouse to meet an emotional need. See, our digital world creates an atmosphere that's all too easy to be secretive. Of course, too easily emotional affairs actually become something that's more than that as well. Further, openness with each other about our devices, it guards us against uh, the use of pornography, another huge issue with marital unfaithfulness. Andy Crouch puts it really well. He says, there is nothing in our society that has surrendered more completely and more catastrophically to technology's basic promise, easy everywhere, than sex. And he's right to say that simply putting on an automatic systems blocker, it's not enough. We need something more powerful. Accountability, transparency, and visibility in the context of our relationship. So, wisdom tells us spouses have each other's passwords and parents have total access to their children's devices. That might not be a major shift for some of you, but it might be for others. And I want to just just encourage you to be committed to wisdom, to live lined up with God's big story, and, and that builds that commitment and that relationship. And that leads to our second commitment, the last one we'll finish up with today, and I know we're just about out of time. Um, We use our screens for a purpose, and we use them together rather than using them aimlessly and alone. As noted in part one and two of our series, we are created for connection with God and each other. All of us have this inbuilt longing to belong and be welcomed by God and his community. And although the online world promises more connectedness, um, and you know, for many that turns into a promise of happiness, we actually experience the opposite of that. Again, the Renegotiating Faith Report, um, it says this, one of the ironies of being connected on social media is that users are more likely to experience social isolation. They are just 
broken apart from other people. Researcher um, Jean Twing, uh, who has provocatively said there is not a single exception, just listen to this, all screen activities are linked to less happiness and all non-screen activities are linked to more happiness, has said just as categorically, just as, as for happiness, the results are clear. Screen activities are linked to more loneliness. Non-screen activities are linked to less loneliness. Why is that? I, I was, uh, Harry actually shared this quote with me this week, and it says this, your phone keeps you close to people far away, but far away from the people close to you. Andy Crouch makes the wise and straightforward comment, as with so much of our mediated world, the solution to this is, is astonishingly simple and radical only because it is so rarely done. The problem isn't with our devices themselves. It's with the way we use them. We simply have to turn off the easy fixes and make media something we use on purpose rather than aimlessly and frequently. What does that look like? Crouch again puts it well. When we sit down in front of a TV screen, it will be with a specific purpose and a specific hope. Not just entertainment or distraction, but wonder and exploration. You know, there are fabulous programs. There is great TV, beautiful stories told in movies that enrich our lives. I just think of the Planet Earth series that BBC did introduces us to the wonders and the beauty of God's world that he made and loves. There is all kind of compelling and hilarious stories that are worthy of our time and attention. There are. So screens, they stay blank and black unless we have a specific purpose in mind. We would decide to let our kids and ourselves watch programming that's only satisfying and enriching. And I know, here's the caveat. If you have like baby-sized kids and toddlers and they've been up half the night with them, and you just need to put a program on and then go back to bed for a little bit. Parents, I'm not trying to put pressure on you against that kind of thing. I get that. Uh, but when we're using our devices kind of aimlessly and purposefully and alone, that's where they begin to suck out the life. So I think it means creating spaces in our homes that foster creativity and connection. Then we had a craft table when our kids were small, and it was total mayhem. It was a disaster all the time. But it wasn't a screen, and they were creative, and they still love creating. Um, so these address the issues of boredom and outlet for creativity. We have Lego all over our house. It's, have you ever stepped on Lego? That's it. This is just yesterday. Adam, craft bin. Two hours worth of creating. That's not screen time. It's beautiful creativity. We have musical instruments in our home. The boys can play whenever they want, and they often do, or we do as a whole family. Board games are present in our living space. They are the things that, are, that you see when you walk into our house rather than a screen. Um, so just those are a few encouragements, really practical ways to do that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, and uh, they're going to close with one more thing. And as they do, like John the Baptist, we have a real significant role to play in God's ongoing story. He is leading history forward in a beautiful way to a final goal. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then would you make it your goal to say he must increase and I must decrease? This will mean giving undistracted attention to our neighbors. It'll mean, as I said in part one, that we make space around the dinner table and time 
it means that we will generally just show up and be present to the people in our lives to see what God is doing in our world and to join him in it. It will mean announcing the news of Jesus in winsome and respectful ways. And so rather than looking to online spaces to build your identity, rather than being driven by the fear of other people or simply numbing the pain or using social media as a buffer to think about the most significant issues of life, we've seen that there is a beautiful, wild story that God is writing and you get to be a part of it. So let's stand and sing in celebration of that.